Open with me to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12. We're actually going to be uh, in chapters 12 through 15 today. Because of that, we'll, uh, for our, our time actually reading through the passage, we'll read sections from, uh, from these chapters. You can follow along as I sort of hop, skip, and jump. Uh, what we're going to try to do as we, uh, as we read here is to read a little bit from almost every, uh, we're not going to read from chapter 14, but just to try to hit some highlights so that you get some sort of an, uh, a feel or you get yourself oriented to what's going on in these chapters. So start with me in Leviticus 12. That's a short chapter, so let's read verses 1 through 8. And then we will move into chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. And then I'll direct us further. So Leviticus 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, when a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for thirty-three days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for sixty-six days. When the days of her purification are completed, for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood." This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest will make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Chapter 13, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab or a bright spot, and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body... Then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons the priests. The priest shall look at the mark on the skin of the body, and if the hair in the infection has turned white, and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is an infection of leprosy. When the priest has looked at him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the bright spot is white on the skin of his body, and it does not appear to be deeper than the skin, and the hair on it has not turned white, then the priest shall isolate him who has the infection for seven days." The priest shall look on him, or look at him, on the seventh day, and if in his eyes the infection has not changed and the infection has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall isolate him for seven more days. The priest will look at him again on the seventh day, and if the infection has faded and the mark has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only a scab, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scab spreads farther on the skin after he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again to the priest. The priest shall look, and if the scab has spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is leprosy. Skip over in chapter 13 to verses 45 and 46. 
Here is the fallout, or in part, some of the fallout or the consequences from these skin infections. 1345, as for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He will live alone. His dwelling will be outside the camp. Skip over with me to chapter 15. Verses 1 through 12. The Lord also spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. This, moreover, shall be his uncleanness in his discharge. It is his uncleanness whether his body allows its discharge to flow or whether his body obstructs its discharge. Every bed on which the person with the discharge lies becomes unclean, and everything on which he sits becomes unclean. Anyone, moreover, who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and, clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever sits on the thing on which the man with the discharge has been sitting shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Also, Whoever touches the person with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Or if the man with the discharge spits on one who is clean, he too shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Every saddle on which the person with the discharge rides becomes unclean. Whoever then touches any of the things which were under him shall be unclean until evening, and he who carries them shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Likewise, whomever the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. However, an earthenware vessel which the person with the discharge touches shall be broken, and every wooden vessel shall be rinsed in water. Skip over to verse 31 with me. Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness, so that they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling my tabernacle that is among them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, according to the kindness that we have been singing about and praising, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law? Help us to see in your commands, in your instruction, what you were intending to teach your people concerning your holiness and our impurity. Father, would you help us to see the depths of our uncleanness? and the riches of the purity of Christ who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Be good and kind to us, we ask now, as we spend time in your word. Amen. So Leviticus 12 through 15 is, a, is, uh, is in a unit that starts actually in chapter 11 that culminates, we'll, be, we'll see next week, in chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement. But if you were to take chapter 11 through chapter 16, Leviticus 11 through 16, these are oftentimes referred to as the purity laws or laws concerning uh, clean and unclean. 
All right, let, just by way of reminder, let's touch on a couple things that we mentioned last week because they pertain to some of the things that we will see this week in the passages that we just read. Number one, remember that one of the reasons that you have these purity laws, beginning in verse 11, or I'm sorry, chapter 11, on through, up through chapter 16, is because the purity laws go to declare who is fit and ready to draw near to God. Purity laws go to say who is fit and ready to draw near to God. Accordingly, when you read in context, it becomes clear that merely to be declared unclean in and of itself does not mean that you have committed a sin. To be unclean does not mean that you have knowingly violated one of God's commands or transgressed a a boundary line, so to speak. In fact, as we looked last week when we looked at chapter 11, we just talked about the fact that just coming into contact with an unclean animal makes you unclean. The world, as it is fallen and broken and in sin and rebellion against its creator, this world is impure. And we go about daily in the muck and in the mire of this fallen created order And those things affect or shape our relative cleanliness or purity because we're part of the created order. So to say that someone is unclean does not necessarily mean that they're sinful, but it does mean that as they stand in their uncleanness or their impurity, they still cannot approach or draw near to the Lord. Chapter 11 that we looked at last week concerning the food laws goes to say at least two things. Number one, that the Lord has separated His people. That's part of what it means to be made holy, that you have been separated and made distinct. So in similar fashion, the fact that the Lord separates the animal kingdom for His people between clean and unclean is itself patterned after the fact that he has separated his people from all the other peoples of the earth. These people are holy. These people are unholy. There is a distinction between the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean. But that not only are God's people distinct, but as we have just said, their distinctiveness, their holiness can be marred or contaminated by the impurity in the world out there. What chapters 12 through 15 do is it makes something of a transition, although it's not explicit. It seems to suggest that our problem when it comes to remaining pure and clean and holy and fit for God's presence is not merely what happens out there in the world around us. Our impurity comes through even in our own bodies. We can make ourselves unclean and impure and thereby unfit for God's presence. The impurity is not out there so much as it's in here. Now, that being said, we want to start, well, we'll go through this in three ways, three points that we want to try to make here. Number one, What these purity laws go to teach God's people and us is that we are not holy if we are not whole. We are not holy if we are not whole. 
Number two, a lack of holiness or a lack of wholeness or a lack of purity, however you want to frame it, excludes us from life with God. And number three, we have a priest who can make us clean. Number one, we are not holy if we are not whole. Number two, our impurity, our unholiness excludes us from, the life, from life with God. And number three, we have a priest who makes us clean and fit. So, there are three basic categories in 12 through 15. In chapter 12, you have purity laws concerning childbirth. In chapters 13 and 14, you have laws concerning leprosy. And if I can pause here just for a second. For all intents and purposes, it's, it's highly unlikely that chapter 13 and 14 is actual leprosy in the way that we think of leprosy today. All right? The descriptions don't exactly match up. The terminology in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament doesn't exactly match up. Leprosy is just sort of, for, for reasons we won't get into right now, just seems to be something of a catch-all word for a skin disorder. All right? Eczema, psoriasis right? Open wound, anything like that, okay? It seems to be a skin disorder. So I'll refer to it more often than not, not as leprosy, but as a skin infection or a skin disease or something like that, just to help us keep us in the framework. So chapter 12, purity laws concerning childbirth. Chapters 13 and 14, purity laws concerning skin infections. And chapter 15, purity laws concerning bodily discharges, in each one of those categories, those three categories, you are rendered unclean. Why? It certainly can't be because bearing children is sinful, right? In the very beginning, God blesses the man and the woman and says, be fruitful and multiply. Over and over and over again, we're told throughout the Old Testament that children are a blessing from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His reward, right? There's nothing sinful or evil in childbirth. Similarly, you could say that if I were to get some sort of a skin infection, there's nothing sinful in that. I mean, maybe I've done something sinful that causes me to contract a disease, I don't know, but in and of itself... Run-of-the-mill skin infection is not sinful. What is it about these things that make the worshiper unclean? And here's what I think is going on in 12 through 15. What 12 through 15 seems to indicate, what these three things have in common, is that whether childbirth, skin infection, or bodily discharge, there is some abnormality or some deficiency that's at play. And anything or anyone who is abnormal or deficient cannot enter into the presence of a perfect God. So, for childbirth, one of the emphasis that the emphasis that's made in the childbirth chapter is on the blood factor, the loss of blood. Loss of blood in childbirth, the loss of blood itself indicates an ebbing out of your life source or that which gives you life. 
you're losing blood. Even if you don't die, you are at risk of death. If there would be some complication or if the blood flow was not staunched or stopped, you're losing something in the amount of blood that you have. You're, you're deficient. You've lost something. For a skin disease, that's more commonsensical, you have some sort of deficiency in your body. Something is not working right. Something has broken down. You have an infection either below the skin or on the skin. You've got a sore. You've got something there that is just not right. Your body is not performing at peak performance right now. You are less than what you ought to be at this particular moment. And when it comes to a bodily discharge, whether below the skin or not, any oozing or flowing or loss of fluids, once again, goes to a depletion or a loss. It goes to a lack of control or lack of containment. Things are not being contained and held as they should be. Here's the simple point. The point, it seems, that God is trying to make with his people in these purity laws in chapters 12 through 15 is to simply say this, that holiness is not merely about not doing what is wrong. That is part of holiness. Holiness means you will not do anything immoral. You will not break God's clearly stated commands. But holiness also means that you must be whole and complete. And if you are not whole and complete, you can't come. You're unclean. If you are not perfectly clean, you can't draw near to worship. Now, consider for a moment, right, most of us sit here and we, we don't have the kind of worry that we did last week, right? Some of you said, I was so nervous as we were going through chapter 11 because I didn't know what I was going to eat after the service on Sunday. What can I eat? What can I not eat? All right? So let me back up there. Remember, we, we pointed to the, the passage in Mark where Jesus declares all food clean, and he does that to say it's not what goes into a man that defiles him and makes him unclean. It's what comes out of the man from his heart that makes him unclean, right? In other words, the law, as Paul says, was being used as a tutor, as an instructor, as a disciplinarian until Christ came so that we could see what real purity and real holiness was all about. So here's how the real purity and holiness that Christ calls his people to works in the construct of Leviticus 12 through 15. If Leviticus 12 through 15 is saying through bodily demonstrations, through flesh and blood analogies or illustrations or paradigms, that you must be perfectly fit in order to come into the presence of God, and Jesus comes later and says, well, the true perfect wholeness and fitness that God is looking for in his worshipers is a fitness of mind and heart, Where does that leave us? 
If God is the one who declares what is right and what is not right, what is normal and what is not normal, and says, this is it, this is the standard, how will we do? What is normal for God's people? You want to hear an example of what's normal as far as it concerns the heart and mind? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's normal. Now stop for a minute and think. In light of the purity laws, purity means whole and complete. If you love the Lord, but you don't love him with all your heart, guess what that makes you? It makes you unclean and unworthy to enter into God's presence. If you love the Lord, but you don't love him with all your soul and all of your strength, you cannot come to God. You are not holy. You are not whole. Another normalcy standard, you will love your neighbor as yourself. How many of us do that? Once again, hear it. Not just if you like your neighbor, not just if you're kind to your neighbor, if you give a good gesture to your neighbor, you must love your neighbor. And not just love your neighbor, you must love your neighbor as yourself. I have a hard enough time doing that with my wife and my children. How am I going to do it with the random person that I meet on the street? If I don't love my neighbor as myself, I am not measuring up to God's standard of normalcy. Do you see? And it goes on. Jesus says, not only are you going to love those who love you, but you're going to love your enemy. And then just to show how far removed we are from that kind of pure heart, you will love your enemy and you will pray for those who persecute you. Delight yourself in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Sometimes? Always. In everything, give thanks. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure and lovely and good report, think on those things. You ever think on something that's not that? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Submit to your husband as to the Lord. Obey your parents in the Lord. That this is what you have to do. This is the mark that we have to meet if we are to be considered holy and fit and complete and ready to enter into the presence of God. Who can meet this? 
Who can do it? Anything that falls short, Paul says, of the glory of God is sin. You don't have to try to rebel against God. Merely falling short disqualifies us from life with God. And did you see what the consequences are, what what happens when you don't measure up? Again, going back to Leviticus 12 through 15. Go back with me to Leviticus 12. Look at verse 4. This is is for the woman who is impure as a result of childbirth. Look, because of her impurity, this is what Leviticus 12.4 says. She shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. What What does that mean? It means she can't go to worship. She can't go with her husband or with her family to the tabernacle. She can't mix and mingle with God's people because she is not fit to be in God's presence or in the presence of his people. Look at chapter 13. Remember verse 46. The leper, or the one with the infection, the skin infection, the skin disease, will go around in verse 45, crying out, unclean, unclean. And verse 46 says, he will remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He will live alone. His dwelling will be outside the camp. Impurity means you go into exile, alone, and you can't take anyone with you. You have to leave the camp. You have to leave the place where God dwells. And then last but certainly not least, in chapter 15, verse 31... Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling my tabernacle that is among them. If you come into the presence of God less than perfect, you defile the presence of God. You don't defile God. You dirty up by your impurity, by your pollution, that place that God has declared holy. If you try to draw near to God when you are not pure and clean, the penalty is death. 
How serious does God take purity with His people when the penalty is death? Have you ever considered the fact that what you have here is, is something of a, a model of what we saw all the way back in the very beginning of the redemptive story in Genesis? God creates Adam and Eve and places them in this unique place, this garden where they can commune and have fellowship with him, enjoying God's presence. This special place, and it's separated, carved out from all the rest of creation. They sin, they disobey, they defile themselves, and because of their sin and impurity, what happens as a result? They're expelled from the presence of the Lord. They're sent out of the garden. They cannot return again. They cannot draw near. It's hard not to see something of an echo of that in these Leviticus laws as well. Whether because of knowing sin or unknowing sin, whether because of intentional defilement or unintentional defilement, because you are no longer pure, you are sent outside of the place where God dwells. You cannot enjoy fellowship with your God, and you cannot enjoy continued fellowship with God's people. Have you ever stopped to think about how easily we come to gatherings like this on Sunday? On what ground do any of us dare to walk in these doors and sing? On what ground do any of us dare to come in and to say, I am one of His, I am a saint made holy? On what ground? On the ground of your work? On the ground of your effort? On the ground of your striving? On the ground of your resolutions? No. You entered freely this morning into a place where God makes His presence known to draw near in worship, to fellowship with His people on the ground that Christ has made you clean. Do you ever consider that one of the things that we do when we gather on Sunday morning is that we bear witness to this truth, that when we come on Sunday morning and we gather together, because the Lord Himself has said that the assembly of His people, that the church is the temple of His presence, a better tabernacle, a place where God is uniquely displayed or made known, or enjoyed? Have you considered that by coming into this living, breathing temple, that one of the things that you're doing, what you're confessing, what you're bearing witness to, is the fact that no matter what happened to you in this previous week, you're coming in because Christ has made you clean. That you're not coming in because you are pure but because Christ is pure, and His purity counts for your impurity. Have you ever thought that when we come and when we gather on Sunday morning that what we're doing is celebrating the fact that we can draw near to God? 
in spite of the fact that not a single one of us deserves it. On the other side, have you also considered what it means when you don't gather on Sunday? When we don't gather on Sunday, when we don't take advantage of the better promises and the better provisions that God has made for us in the new covenant for this new community, this new people of God, we are, intentionally or not, oftentimes unconsciously even, I fear bearing witness to the fact that we find other things more desirable than worship. I find comfort better than worship. I find sleep to be better than sanctification. I find my children to be greater sources of joy than the joy that I find worshiping God in the presence of His people. So I'll go do other things. I won't come. Let me, let me just say this, and we'll move on to the third point. Let me just say this. It may actually be, particularly in this day and age, that one of the best testimonies or one of the best ways that we witness to the gospel, the fact that we sinners have been redeemed and made clean, reconciled to God, one of the best ways that we give witness to that is by coming to church on Sunday morning. Because who else would do that? Why would they do it? Number three, if you can't get from Leviticus 12 through 15 to Jesus, you're not reading it right. All right? Or maybe we should say it this way. If you can't read Leviticus 12 through 15 and want to get to Jesus, you're not reading it right. Right? Just one case in point. Look with me. Just, this is just as a snapshot. Look with me at chapter 13, verses 6 through 8. Okay, now, in, in all of this, whether on the front end or the back end, the priest still plays a pivotal role in these issues of purity and impurity. In all of these instances, one of the things that happens is that your, your, your purity, your return to normalcy and wholeness, is signified by the fact that the priest offers up sacrifices and offerings on your behalf. Okay? But there are other ways that the priest functions. So in 13.6, the priest shall look at him. This is, in, this is talking about skin infections. The priest shall look at him again on the seventh day, and if the infection has faded and the mark is not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It's only a scab. He shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scab spreads further on the skin, he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing. He shall appear again to the priest and look at verse 8. The priest shall look, and if the scab has spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. 
It is leprosy. By the way, that happens just on the issue of, of skin infections. That happens some 10 or 11 times. The priest will look at him and will pronounce him blank, either clean or unclean. You see what's going on here? I want to be clean if I'm unclean, because if I'm not clean, I have to live a living death. I have to live separated from God and from His people. I desperately want to be clean. I must go to the priest. That's part of the process in being called clean. Do you see what the priest does? The priest can look at me, and he can say, you're clean or you're unclean. But he can't make me clean. He can pronounce me clean or unclean, but his word of pronouncement does nothing to affect the real status of my cleanliness or my uncleanliness. But in the fullness of time, God in his mercy and kindness to unclean, impure people gave us a better high priest who can look at the impurity of his people and say, not only you are unclean, but I can make you clean. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Two instances that we want to look at, one in Matthew 8 and one in Matthew 9. Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4. These things that we're going to read here, this, this screams Leviticus. Screams Leviticus. Matthew 8, 1 through 4. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now pause right there just for a second. Where should this leper, according to the Levitical law, not be? He shouldn't be anywhere there are other people around. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and did what? Touched him. What should Jesus, according to the Levitical law, not have done? Shouldn't have touched him. There is more purity in a single touch from Christ than there is impurity in your entire soul and heart. Because he is more holy than you can be unholy, his touch makes you holy. It does not diminish his holiness. And Jesus says, I am willing be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Do you hear that? Listen, it's not just simply that Jesus can do it. That's not even what Jesus says. Yes, he can do it. I'm able to do it, and I am willing to do it. If you wrestle with impurity, if you wrestle with the corruption of your heart and mind, and you have not come to find release and healing and purification from the purity of Christ, it's not because He doesn't want to purify you. It's because you refuse to come. He is more willing to heal you than you are to be healed. 
And then in the next chapter, Matthew 9, look at verses 20 through 22. A woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage, a discharge for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. It's really interesting, when you read this account in Mark and Luke, Mark and Luke stress the fact that when Jesus turns around, this is where Jesus says, who touched me? I felt power go out, right? And when he turns and looks around, that the woman comes, knowing that she's been exposed, she comes in fear and trembling. Why does she come in fear and trembling? Because like the leper in chapter 8, she should have been nowhere near Jesus, let alone throngs of people. But she's desperate. And what does our merciful, sympathetic high priest do for people who are desperate? He grants them the cleansing and the purity that they want simply because they come to him. There is no formality. There is no pattern. There is no system. There is no prayer that's prayed. There is no organ music or anything like that. They simply come to Christ and are healed. Let me make one more point, one more word of encouragement or challenge. There are two ways that we ought to hear and consider the further implications of of Leviticus 12 through 15. Number one is what we've been stressing over and over and over again just now, that it's the Lord, that it's Christ who makes us clean and fit to enter into the presence of God. He is the one who makes us qualified worshipers. We do not qualify or cure ourselves. But the other thing to say is this, there is a tendency or a temptation to think that because the purifying work of Christ is a once-for-all kind of purification, that once I get that initial purity, I need not worry about purity for the rest of my life. That's not the way the purification of Christ works. In 1 John, John talks about walking in the light as he is in the light. If we do, John says, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he says a little bit later in chapter 2, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in chapter 3... He says, everyone who has this hope, talking about the hope that one day we will be like our Savior. We will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. John says, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. One of the things that comes, one of the gifts that comes with our purification, our, the sanctifying work of Christ, is a heart and is a mind that longs to be clean. 
We have a growing distaste, even disgust for sin. It doesn't sit lightly with us. We can't make peace with it. Even if I fail multiple times a day, still I find that sin repulsive and repugnant. I want to be free of it. There is a way in which God, once for all, in the sacrifice of his son, cleanses his people for all time. And then, having cleansed us to bring us into his presence so that we can draw near with a full assurance of faith, says, now, walk in that purity. Now, enjoy that holiness in increasing measure and in deepening degrees. Let me suggest that maybe one of the reasons why we as Christians don't enjoy our relationship with Christ as much as we should or could is because it's hard to enjoy Christ when you're still in the muck and the mire of your old sin. It's hard to love someone who's holy. It's hard to find him attractive when you're indulging yourself in those things that are not holy. But even then, the mercy of God in the person of Christ is so sufficient that with our laxness, with our waywardness, whether like the leper or the woman with the hemorrhage, Jesus says, come, and I can make you clean. Let's pray. Father, how we praise you for what we see in the purity laws of Leviticus. And not only because of our willful sin, but just our natural impurities, our creatureliness, the imperfections of our heart and mind, to say nothing of the imperfections of our flesh, that based on those factors, we have no right to claim you as our God. We have no right to enter into your presence freely. But you have sent your son to us to come and to take on our nature so that he could give to us a purity that was beyond us, so that he could cleanse us, so that our hearts and our minds could be sprinkled clean. And so, Father, would you help us not to take that sanctification lightly? Give us a hunger and a heart for holiness. Make us more and more like the holiness of our Savior and do it by the power of your Spirit at work within us and among us so that you would be glorified by your people here. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen.